Welcome back to the 61st episode of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellett. Happy National Student Athlete Day. Today's story comes to us by way of community college and Division II. The current status of college athletics and the transfer portal made this story a fun one to tell. Not every amazing story from this podcast comes from Division I players and Olympians. The National Junior College Athletic Association says that approximately 60,000 student-athletes participate in 28 sports at 500-plus community and junior college environments across the United States every year. It's important to also recognize those whose college careers packed up and moved or got lost in the transfer portal, as hundreds of athletes currently are. Today, this is Brendan Griffith's story, and it begins at Tompkins Cortland Community College in Dryden, New York. So I have a, a- kind of crazy story of how I found my way to playing college soccer. I uh, originally out of high school, I had committed to a division three school called Endicott College. And it's in a little bit north of Boston in Beverly, Massachusetts. And I had been recruited by this school and kind of told all the right things by the coach. And then when I showed up to campus for preseason, I think there were like 45 or 50 of us. Um, and he was basically like, all right, you know, this is a tryout and I'm, I'm keeping the best. I think he kept like 25 players or something. So after a couple days, um, you know, I just, he didn't want to keep me on the team and, and cut me from the team. And so then I had to go back home and return to campus when all the general population, the general students came back to school. Um, so I went a whole year at Endicott without playing soccer, um, just being a student. And it was a good experience, but I just, I missed the game so much. And and I wasn't as happy as I felt I fully could have been. So then after that freshman year, I decided that I wanted to keep trying to play. So I, um, I dropped out of Endicott and I enrolled in a community college called Tompkins Cortland Community College, which is uh, out in Western New York. Um, yeah, just to give me the opportunity to, to try and keep playing a little bit and to, you know, try something new. So many ups and downs with it. It was a completely new kind of culture and area that I'd ever been used to. Um, it was, I don't know how many people are familiar with New York, but it was kind of right in between like Ithaca and Syracuse. So it was a little bit kind of out in the country, which, you know, not something that I was used to. But I met some amazing people there. I got to play soccer there for two years. I had, you know, I have great friends from there, great coaches. And I just got to play this sport that I love again. And and that was really the biggest thing for me. Um, I still got to study. I got my associate's degree from there. Um, Probably saved a little bit of money as well, looking back on it, taking a break from the four-year education. Um, Yeah, it was, was, I look back with some really fond memories of that time. Griffith suggested that COVID-19 acted as a catalyst for student-athletes to opt for community college educations, as opposed to paying for NCAA experiences, but learning from their bedrooms. When universities were completely remote and, you know, students were paying full tuition, it was kind of like, well, I could do the same thing at a community college and I could save a little bit of money. So I think the junior college route, like you said, has kind of had that resurgence and I think even at the time when I was there, there was definitely not a lack of talent. It was funny. I was just having a conversation with someone recently about this. And and junior college is such an interesting landscape for athletics because you have certain programs that are 
phenomenal and they have tremendous players. You know, I can use the example of soccer as there were some programs where there were lots of players that would come from overseas and then they would go and they would play junior college and they would go on to division one or division two schools, like you mentioned. And then there were some programs where, you know, it was kind of, okay, who's, who's on campus, who's attending this school and do they want to play soccer? And, and, you know, those teams didn't do quite the best. So you would have just a huge disparity in talent level, but at the top, um, as you mentioned, there were really some quality, some quality athletes. That disparity of athletes was further exacerbated by the fact that the transition from JUCO to NCAA sanctioned sport comes with little to no guidance. Athletes want to utilize JUCO and community college experiences as leverage to make the leap, but it's made more difficult when those athletes have no roadmap. There was a little bit more of kind of have to do it on your own, I guess, especially when it came to you know, wanting to transfer to a, a four-year institution after community college. That was kind of, you know, your coaches would help you out a little bit, but a lot of that work really had to come down to you getting it done on your own if you wanted to make it happen. Um, we had, let's see, I think we had one athletic trainer and she, she had like one assistant kind of um, for all of our sports. And granted, we didn't have as many, you know, sports as a, a big time school, but still, and, you know, in the fall, you had uh, men's and women's soccer. I think we had a cross-country team at the time. You know, each season had a couple of sports, so it was a lot. Um, yeah, that was one thing I think maybe a little bit less on the resources side, for sure. Griffiths was one of the lucky ones to figure out the transfer portal process on his own. He found himself at Division II's Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania poised to continue playing soccer at a higher level. It was a little bit similar to when, you, when I was first applying to colleges out of high school. So I kind of, kind of had some experience doing it once and then went on to do it again with the transfer experience. The only real difference is now making sure that you get all of your transcripts and all of your credits sent over from your institution to where you want to go to next. Um, other than that, though, the process is kind of similar. So luckily I had that to fall back on and remember that experience. But yeah, it was just a lot of it was just kind of knowing that it was something I really wanted to do and really wanted to make happen. So, you know, Google is sometimes your best friend. You know, what do you need to be able to transfer to a school? What kind of um, documents are required? What's the application process like? Um Sometimes it was reaching out to the admissions staff on the universities that I was looking to attend to, and also with the coaching staffs of the universities that I was trying to transfer to as well, just trying to get as much help as I could from the other side as well. After I finished my associate's degree in uh, Cortland, New York, there is a, uh, a SUNY school, so a State University of New York school called SUNY Cortland right over there. And I had been in contact with that coach and I was, you know, already in the area. So I was like, hey, I'd like to continue my education here. SUNY Cortland has a really great soccer program and I would love to come and play for that team. And we had some good conversations. It seemed like things were going well. I was actually going to graduate in the winter. So I would have been able to enroll in the spring and start training with the team in the spring and hopefully kind of get a little bit of my feet under me and then be ready to go for the fall season. Um, and then, you know, just 
the way things go sometimes in college athletics and athletics in general, for whatever reason, there was a conversation had down the road once I was already enrolled at Cortland that was like, oh, actually, you're not going to be able to train with us in the spring. And then I was like, okay, so how does the fall look? And, and the coach had gotten to see me play, I think, a week or two after that conversation and was like, yeah, you know, I think you could come for a, a walk-on tryout, but I don't know if I see you as being part of the team. You know, don't know if I see you as a member of this team. Which, for those who don't know, like a walk-on tryout is, is kind of... <laughs> it usually happens about two weeks into preseason. So the team's already been training for two weeks and then, you know, whoever's on campus and wants to try out for the team, they get a one day shot to come out and try and prove themselves, which is, it's possible for any player to do, but it's extremely difficult to make that happen. So I kind of was left in a similar situation again, where I didn't have a home. I didn't have a place where I could keep playing and finish my degree. And it just so happened that one of my friends at community college was in contact with a co this coach from Philly. Uh, his name's Julian Fernandez. I still speak to him this day. He's an awesome guy. And so I said, oh, what the hell? I'll reach out. And I reached out to this school in Philly. And, and he was like, yeah, if you want to come down, check us out. I did. Turns out my friend was going to go there as well. So we both kind of transferred there together. And yeah, I think I decided in the summer before enrolling in the fall that I was going to transfer out of Portland and then go to uh, go to Philadelphia. There's so many players that they just, they get kind of lost in the shuffle or, or they get stuck. And it can be for so many different reasons. You know, I think now having a little bit more of a perspective of what it's like to be a college coach as well, I can understand how sometimes players do just get lost in the shuffle, you know, like, these division one college coaches are getting <clears throat> hundreds or, or thousands of emails from students looking to attend their university and they're trying to keep tabs on everybody and they're trying to help everybody that they can or, or that they're really interested in. But like you said, the perfect way to describe it is some players just kind of get lost in the shuffle. So it really takes, especially when you're in the transfer portal, it really takes you being proactive and being on top of everything that you need to um, communicating thoroughly and effectively with with coaches with admissions and and just making sure that you get where you need to go when griffiths found chestnut hill he knew it was the right fit he suddenly had resources that community college had never given him and opportunities to join a storied men's soccer program that allowed him not only playing time but an opportunity to start i had more access to resources at my division two school for sure i think still what is unique about college athletics in general and what maybe some people don't know is it really kind of just depends on the, the individual program itself not necessarily always what division it is you know there's some division three schools that have amazing facilities amazing resources amazing support because they're super well funded and there's some division ones where it's you know not quite at that level so it, it just comes down to each individual situation and I would encourage, you know, any athletes who may be listening to this to kind of look at it from that perspective rather than just going, OK, it's Division One, it's going to be better. Think about, you know, what that individual school has to offer you. So from an athletic training perspective, from that side of it, definitely had more access to to trainers, to more, um, you know, equipment, some of the whirlpools, hot tubs, stuff like that, access to doctors. Um 
on the nutrition side, it was probably kind of just whatever the athletic training staff could offer to us as well, whatever they could kind of give in terms of insight or advice. We didn't really have a, a dedicated nutritionist or dietitian or anything like that at my school. And then the mental health side was kind of through just the, it wasn't a specific student athlete mental health resource, I guess is what I would say. It was more so through the school in general, through their psychology department, through their uh, mental health support for, for the student population. You know, from the start, when I first wanted to go to that division three school, and then I got cut to then find my way to a division two school and play against some, against some phenomenal players with some phenomenal players, be able to be a starting player to just kind of prove to myself that I was capable of playing at that level. And, and to be able to do it was such an amazing feeling. You know, did I, did I win tons of championships or have tons of accolades as a college athlete? No, but for me, it was just like, you hear so many times, no, like you're not good enough or no, you can't play at this level to then go out and do it and prove, no, I can do this. I can play at this level was, you know, enough of a, of a satisfactory moment for me. And, and just to kind of prove too, you know, that I'm not crazy, that I'm not, I'm not thinking this and it's, it's not true. Cause you hear it, you hear it enough times and you start to think, Oh man, am I maybe not good enough? Can I not play at this level? And it's just what, you know, I had, that little bit of extra self-belief to keep on going and, and to make it. And I think for me, looking back on my college career, yeah, I, I can definitely be satisfied with, with how it played out. Griffiths had a tremendous support system of former teammates, family, and friends that pushed him towards success in higher education. I would love to say that it was just, it came all for myself. And I think that's, that's part of it. I definitely had an internal belief in myself. But I think it was also coupled with kind of when I would hear, you know, because anytime I was in a team and I would be with a team for a while, I would have teammates that would have confidence in me and would believe in me and tell me that I'm a good player and I'm a valuable member of the team, you know? And so when you hear that from the guys that you're working with day in and day out, and then you go somewhere else and a coach is like, uh, I don't think so, you know? I would always just kind of take the word of the guys who I'd been training with and playing with for however long, you know? So I knew guys that I played high school with or club soccer with, or then when I wound up at Juco, you know, those guys, they believed in me as a player. So I was like, all right, if they believe in me, then there has to be something here as well. Um, you know, I also had great support from family as well. You know, my mom has been tremendous and, and always just supporting me in whatever I wanted to do. And even, even if it seemed like a crazy idea sometimes, you know, transferring to a school or, or doing something different, she was always just one to be like, okay, you know, how do I help? How do we, how do we make this happen? So yeah, it, it's, it, it's internal, but it, it takes a village as well to, to build up that self-confidence and that self-belief. After he graduated from Chestnut Hill College, Griffiths found an opportunity to play overseas in Bremen's Germany, FCA Darmstadt in the sixth division of German soccer. I, I just stumbled across something on social media, actually. There was a, a club who had come over to the United States a couple of times to, to scout players at like different events where college players like seniors and you know guys who had graduated would go to try and get seen. 
and they had brought some American players over. And so I just reached out to them and I said, hey, you know, I've seen you've signed some American players. Are you looking for anyone more? You know, here's my highlight video. Here's my resume, kind of. And they got back to me and said, yeah, well, you know, love to have you over. And so then in the summer of 2019 was when I moved over to, to Germany. My, my original plan had been, I had played with a, a buddy who was Australian. And so in the summer, I was going to go and visit my friend in Australia and he knew a couple of teams. So I was going to see if I could maybe try out with them. I was going to stay with him. It was more just kind of be to see him and visit him and, and see a new place and also maybe try out with some teams. And then while I had this trip planned, all of a sudden this Germany opportunity came up. So I still went to Australia, but then, you know, instead of flying home after Australia, I decided I was going to fly to Germany next. And so, yeah, I probably had a couple, couple months, maybe two or three months of prep and, you know, quickly downloaded Duolingo and, and tried to, to get as much German as I could in. Um, and yeah, I was in an interesting club because there were quite a bit of Americans there. there actually wasn't a ton of Germans there. We only had like a small handful, but we had a lot of just players from all over the world. It was a very international team. So definitely that language barrier, that communication piece came into play. And funnily, funny enough, it actually was, you know, not just German and English. It was also, you know, English and Portuguese and, and English and Spanish and, and just kind of figuring out a way to, to stay united and to communicate through the game. There were some of the Brazilian guys who also spoke fluent English, so they would kind of be the translators. I always felt a little bit bad for them because there was just so much put on their shoulders you know they had to communicate all the different ideas from the coaching staff or from other players it was always like you know some of the brazilian guys who couldn't speak english would like look for somebody who could and bring them over be like here come help me um yeah like i, I played as a right back a lot of the time in germany and many games the guy who played right in front of me as a right winger was brazilian and like didn't really know probably five words of English. And it was just, we kind of, you know, had an understanding of just the way that the game works. And we wound up playing pretty well together. And, you know, unfortunately, I can't really tell you much about like him as a person, just because we never really were able to communicate. And he probably can't do the same about me, but we always have, you know, that connection, that time where we play together. And that's kind of the beautiful thing about soccer is it's like, even if you can't always communicate verbally, there's, there's some way in which you can communicate. Griffith stayed on with FCA Darmstadt until December 2019, at which point he was looking for upward mobility options. Then COVID-19 hit. I had found an opportunity with a higher level club in Germany to return in March of 2020, which... <laughs> as we all know, is uh, a month where, you know, things change just a little bit. So it was actually, I was supposed to fly, I think, March 14th or 15th of 2020 to Germany. And it was like on the Wednesday or Thursday of that week was my flight. And Saturday, Sunday, Monday, all of a sudden, you know, okay, the NCAA tournament isn't going to happen. Uh, now they're stopping play of basketball. Now, like, 
the dominoes were just falling and I was like, mm, you know what? I don't. And Europe was pretty, pretty aggressive in terms of their lockdown as well. I had one or two friends that were still over there in Europe and they were saying like, they weren't sure if they were going to be able to get back home and stuff like that. So I was like, uh, you know, I just don't think it's the right move for me to fly over to Germany and potentially get stuck over there and then have soccer not happen, you know, have the league be canceled, which wound up being the right decision because I think two weeks later, the league shut down over there. And then as we know, travel restrictions became insane for the, the following really two years after that. So I didn't go in March, 2020. And then it was just kind of a weird, a weird time of just being in limbo of, you know, not really knowing when, when or how the world was going to be able to open up not really sure how sports fit into that how soccer fit into that and it was just kind of taking time to reassess and figure out okay you know is that germany opportunity the best for me should i just wait and see if the country opens and i can go back one day or should i look somewhere else and so i started to look you know just other places as well speaking to contacts emailing teams and i found this denmark opportunity and it wasn't actually until February of 2021, so pretty much almost a whole year later, when we were finally able to make it work for me to be able to fly over there. And even then, it was uh, <laughs> a little dicey trying to get trying to get into Europe at that time. So, yeah, it, it was it was quite a while in between actually Germany and Denmark. Griffiths found an incredible resource discrepancy between his times playing in Germany and his new placement in Denmark. Like in Germany, we had, we had, I think one trainer, she wasn't even really like a trainer. I don't think, I think she was like, uh, she might've honestly even been like a massage therapist or something who just also had a little bit of a physio background who would come and like once a week, check out any player who was injured. And, and it, you know, if you needed extra, then you might need to go to the doctor or to the hospital or something to, to get looked at. And then in Denmark, there wasn't really, it was like, you know, you had to speak to your coaches and if you really needed to get something checked out and then they would have a, they had a doctor who was kind of like a friend of the club that they would bring in every so often for players who would need it. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's obviously I know you're referring to the mental health side of it as well. And uh, I think the answer to your question there is there's there's really not much to be seen in terms of what a club like that can can provide for you. When he finally got into Denmark, he joined his new team for preseason matches. But a major issue with his player's license set him back from eligibility. Once again, even at the professional level, Griffiths was on his own to figure these issues out. Now, the larger problem was that he was translating into two different languages. Finally getting into the country, quarantining for 10 days, and then I start training and I'm able to play in the preseason matches because those aren't like sanctioned or official really. And uh, then it's about to be the first game and I get... Um, have a conversation with my coach and he's like, yeah, so we're trying to get you registered, but for whatever reason, your player's license hasn't come through yet. And I'm kind of like frustrated because I've already been in the country for a while now. And I'm like, you know, I know it's not really anyone's fault per se, but 
I'm like, why, why hasn't this process been started sooner? Why am I just finding out about it, you know, a couple days before, before we're supposed to play the first match? So he tells me that. And, and then it was just, again, it, it goes back to kind of what you're saying. Like, you know, do you have support? Do you have resources or is it like on your own? And a lot of it became on my own, you know, checking with my previous club in Germany, you know, did you send everything that you needed to over to this new club? And they're like, yes. And then, you know, trying to figure out with the, it's called the FA, the footballing association, you know, okay, where's the problem? What's the mishap? And, you know, there was a couple of phone calls that I had to make where, you know, before I, I called, I, I rehearsed over and over. I was like, okay, this is how you say, do you speak English and in Danish? And so they'd answer the phone and I'd ask them, do you speak English? And they'd be like, oh yeah. And then, so I would go through and, and try and figure out, okay, what's the problem with my player's license? So a couple of phone calls like that. And then sometimes with things like that, it just seems to be a waiting game. And I don't really know if anyone knows why. Um, and that's just kind of what it turned into. And then eventually a couple of weeks later, I finally got my player's license and I think honestly, it just the process had been started on time because it took about two or three weeks to come in. And that's the normal processing period for a, a transfer for an international player. And I think it was just didn't know that, you know, they need to do that for an international player. And they just kind of started it too late and then wound up getting it a couple weeks too late. Although his coach eventually assisted the strife. Griffiths was still left across the world from the life he was accustomed to, attempting to learn Danish and struggling mentally. And maybe this is a bit naive on my part. I think playing in college is such this unique experience where you're bonded by your teammates. You know, you're, you're all going through this together and it's like this really tight knit family. And I just kind of thought, oh man, if I can go do this at the professional level, have this tight knit family, have everything be this close group and I'm playing soccer and I get to make a living out of it. Like what can possibly be better than that? And I realized that it's, it's different. It's different than that. When, when money gets involved, when it's a professional, you know, when people are trying to support themselves and they're trying to make a career for themselves, there takes on a whole new connotation to the game. So I think Germany was where probably I started to shift my mindset a little bit more about the sport in general, but I still just had such a hunger and such a desire I felt like to, to see where I could go with the game and to, to see what my limit was, what my peak was, like, am I, am I capable of playing at the pro level? And so that was kind of where I, I first started to get some inklings of that. Um, and Denmark was definitely another tough experience where it was like, more or less, this was the life of a professional where you wake up, you know, you go to training, and there's not much else that you do during your day. And I just don't know if I felt really fulfilled enough in that. I had a really supportive coach um, who was, he was probably honestly my biggest resource for mental health stuff because he was always um, an advocate for that and, and wanted to check in with me. But it was just, it was such an isolating and difficult experience. Um, it was, you know, not to mention it was during the height of COVID and, you know, everything was pretty much shut down. You couldn't really go out and socialize in a way that was normal pre-pandemic. But I just I didn't really have any have anyone 
as a support system and I didn't really have anything to kind of keep me going besides just football and I was just pouring myself into it every you know every so often when I have training and it, it just mentally I just wasn't I wasn't doing well and I was like you know I was pursuing this because I thought this is what I was going to what I would love and what I was going to be happy with and it just stopped feeling like that and I was like and then also too with not having my player's license then I wasn't even playing in matches and I was like all right like this is this is such a difficult place for me to be in you know is this the right move for me to keep staying here and trying to push through this and so I, I did wind up leaving a little bit early uh, than my 90-day visa. Um, I think I probably left with like 20 days on it or something like that. Maybe missed like two two or three more games. But yeah, it was just a, a, a really tough time, really isolating and, and lonely time. Prior to leaving, Griffiths was also plagued by a hamstring strain. It began as yet another soreness. There wasn't a ton of athletic training resources or physio resources, so... It was kind of just stretch and, you know, ice and heat as needed. And, and, but unfortunately with muscle strains and stuff like that, if, if there is something wrong, you do kind of have to take some time off of it. And I wasn't really doing that when I was in Denmark. And then, so the trainings, they were also a little bit lighter because we were in, in season. So it was like one or two days a week, it was a little bit heavier, but then, you know, the other days it was a little bit lighter because we had matches on the weekend. It became a better idea to return to the United States and find an opportunity stateside, which he did. The National Premier Soccer League's New York Shockers welcomed him back to New York, and Griffiths began training with familiar faces, until the nagging hamstring pain turned into a serious injury. So then when I came home, I took a little bit of time off from soccer completely, and then went right into a preseason with Shockers, which was really intense, really strenuous, and, you know, a lot of fitness. It's a lot of 11 versus 11. So there's a lot of running. And I think two weeks into it, maybe, um, I just felt a, a really sharp pain, a really sharp pull on my hamstring. And then I was out for, I think, five or six weeks doing physical therapy and, and trying to get right. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a, it was a really difficult time in 2021 to go from Denmark where I was, you know, questioning whether I wanted to keep doing this. I was not in a great space mentally at all. And then I came home and I was like, okay, well, this is, you know, maybe this is the perfect opportunity for me. It's a team that's almost right in my backyard and I can see if I still love soccer and, uh, and then boom, you know, um, get an injury and, and that's kind of just sometimes what I feel is the nature of of sports some of the guys I had grown up playing with or playing against um so we kind of like knew of each other and yeah it's been a good experience being back with some of those guys it was you know so it, was, it was a little bit trippy honestly to go from because Denmark was an experience where you know full-on a lot of people in Denmark also speak English but their first language is Danish, right? So all during training and everything, everyone's speaking in Danish. And then if anything, they're going to translate to you to speak with you. So to then come back and, you know, be playing for a team called the New York Shockers and everyone's speaking English all the time. And you're like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Cause, and honestly, in a lot of my Denmark trainings, I would be 
just kind of silent because, you know, I, the guys would be like, yeah, you can, you can talk to me in English. It's fine. Like when we're out on the field, but I just, I felt like I wanted to try and assimilate to their culture, try and learn the language a little bit. And, and I wound up just being caught in between two minds. And I, and a lot of time I was just quiet throughout training and I didn't really talk to many people besides like, you know, one or two guys. So then to come home to New York, speaking to everybody and, and getting along with everybody, it was, it was a good experience. I definitely felt welcomed by the team and, uh, it was, it was a nice, a nice reprieve. After the soccer season ended, I took, I took probably the longest break from soccer that I ever had from training. Um, I was coaching, but I was like, I'm just going to take a break from the game. And then in like January, I kind of had a little bit of a bug for it again. And I was like, let me see if I can get some of these guys that played over the summer to see if they want to start training in the mornings. So I did that. And we went for a couple months doing some training again, just trying to see like, do I love this? Do I want to try and pursue it again? Do I want to go after another contract or, you know, is it time for me to do something different? Um, and then, you know, like I said, whether it's, whether this is just the way that sports works or if this is a, a higher power trying to send me a message, I am unfortunately in a, uh, I don't know if you can see, I'm in, a, I'm in a sling and I went to go and defend a guy who was about to shoot pretty close range and he shot it probably as hard as he could and it just connected right with my wrist and uh, broke my wrist. So then Thursday I was in the orthopedic all day, um, had to get my wrist reset and then they were going to have a follow-up to see if I needed surgery for it. And then on the Monday after, uh, I had the follow-up with the doctor and he was like, yep, you're going to need surgery. So Wednesday of this past week, so I'm like six days post-surgery now, I got a bunch, I got a plate and a bunch of screws put into my wrist and uh, I'm out for quite a while um, dealing with this and, and mending with this. So yeah, that's, uh, that's where we're at now. At this point, Griffiths was coming to terms with the fact that the soccer gods were not working in his favor. I think for me, this past year has been a, a real tumultuous ride for me and really mentally been draining. And so like in a lot of the work that I've done with my therapist in the past year, it's been like that transition out of the game, which for a lot of athletes is one of the hardest things that you can do because for your whole life, you identify as an athlete, you know, for me, so much of my identity and who I am, which I'm now learning that it's not, you know, I'm transitioning away from that, but you feel as though your self-worth, your identity is kind of tied into who you are as a player, who you are as an athlete. And so for me, starting to have those feelings of, I don't know if I love this anymore. I don't know if I want to keep doing this. It became difficult for me because now I'm, I feel like I was battling my own self-identity. And so these past couple months I, I, in training, I was loving it at first. And then I was starting to kind of have that same feeling again of like, I don't know if I love this. Like I didn't necessarily always wake up and get really excited to go to practice or to play in games. And so I was kind of like, you know, thinking that it's time for me to try something new and, and starting to become more to terms with it and get a little bit more excited about maybe pursuing some other things. Um, and then, like you said, the soccer gods sometimes have a way of either 
hitting you in the face with the answer or, you know, just speeding up that answer for me. Um, and so while I was maybe in a point where I was feeling close to being ready to move on from the game, I think this injury has sort of forced me to address all those feelings that much quicker. And, you know, everything has come right to the surface and it's like, all right, how are you going to handle it right now with the game taken away from you? Um, and it's a scary thing. It's daunting, you know, even if it wasn't something that I was fully in love with in the same way as the past, it's also been kind of my crux. It's kind of been my comfort zone for a number of years. That's been where it's like my therapist said the other day, she was like, it's hard for athletes when they have this one thing that is their source of, you know, their physical and, and mental health. It's their source of their social circles. It's their source of self-worth. It's their, sometimes their source of financial stability. Like you have all these different things tied into this one sport and then to have it taken away, it becomes challenging to be able to learn how to cope with that and deal with that. So yeah, the, uh, the soccer gods certainly, certainly tell you things or certainly maybe kind of lead you in a direction a little bit quicker than you would have maybe anticipated. A really difficult thing for me when I was over in Denmark was, and then coming home and trying to work through the problems that I was having was I kept feeling like, you know, what, what's wrong with me, right? Like, this is what I wanted to do. Um, this is what I wanted to pursue for my dream. What's wrong with me that I can't make it work, that I can't handle the adversity I'm faced with and can't get through it. But in talking to people more and more, it was like, what if you shift the, the dialogue from what's wrong with me to like, what's happening to me, right? And I think for me, like, I didn't give myself enough credit that I went to a foreign country where I knew absolutely no one in the middle of a pandemic and then was like, hey, this is kind of tough. And like, you know, <laughs> didn't have a support system really there to help me like I do where I am here. So I would encourage athletes, you know, out there that are struggling to maybe one, shift that mindset a little bit instead of always thinking like, what's wrong with me? Try and think, you know, what's happening to me? Like how, what are the circumstances that are affecting me? And can I, what can I do to try and change them or to affect them? Um, and then the other thing is just seek help. Like, and I, and I don't mean that in like a, a negative way because it, it's tough there it still feels like there's a little bit of a stigma around it sometimes with athletes you know reaching out for resources but there's so many athletes that are going through what you're going through it's why I've tried to be more outspoken about the things that I've gone through to hopefully give people um, an example of you know somebody that was at times not okay and that's okay so if you need help like there are resources that are out there even if it's you know, you want to call a fellow athlete and just kind of describe what you're going through or something like seek the resources that you have at your access. I think therapy is a great thing. I think performance coaches, health coaches, you know, anything like that where you can assist yourself is going to help you in terms of your game as well. Griffiths is happy now because he's been laying the groundwork for his life post-sport. Even though his identity outside of sports has shifted, Griffiths isn't worried. Whether we do the work early enough to figure it out during your career, um, you know, then it will eventually come down to there's going to be a time where you're going to be forced to figure that out. And for some, it's just, I'm going to go into coaching because it's, you know, it's the next closest thing. And 
And for some, it's, no, I'm really going to see who I am outside of the game entirely. So for me, I believed that my thought was always, I'm going to play for as long as I can, and then I'm going to go right into coaching because that's the next best thing. And for the first time as of late, I have thought about just not doing either one of those things. I still do a little bit of, I do coaching now, but you know, I, I host a podcast similar to this and I've really enjoyed that. I've really enjoyed having conversations with athletes, with other people in the game to, to give more behind the scenes look at the professional world. Um, I've also, my podcast is in a, is in a network. Um, so there's like a bunch of other shows that are in the network that, uh, a family member of mine I actually started because he hosts a, a movie podcast. So I've really been interested in learning kind of the, the ins and outs of the podcast industry of, you know, learning how to sell ads for podcasts and, and grow shows and work with creators and stuff like that. Um, so I think for me to answer your question, who I am outside of the game, I think is somebody who is, is, hard worker, has a good work ethic, is, is disciplined, is, is, um, likes to challenge myself, likes to be involved in, in projects that I'm passionate about and that I'm excited about. It's also somebody who loves to spend time with his family, with his friends. And I think that's a, a big thing that I've, I've loved about being back stateside now is just getting more time with the people that I enjoy spending time with. I think that's something for me that I'm going to continue to keep at the forefront of my life as much as I possibly can. Um, so yeah, I think, I think who I am is just, is it's still an ongoing process of trying to figure that out, honestly, every day, but it's really just about finding the things that give me joy and, and give me some happiness and not being afraid to maybe take a little bit leap outside of my comfort zone of what the past has been of soccer and try new things and, and try and bet on myself that I can still be happy in something else besides soccer. So, man, I hope one day I can give you a more concise answer to, to who I am. But, uh, you know, right now we're still kind of in the thick of it of figuring it out. But I think I think we're getting there closer and closer day by day. You can listen to Brandon's soccer podcast in the 11 at the link in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to today's sponsor, BetterHelp.com. All the stories I've told thus far have been the vulnerabilities of elite athletes and team personnel. But what happens before they're comfortable speaking about some of the most difficult times in their lives on such a public forum? Nearly all of them have utilized either a sports psychologist or a therapist. Now, I'm bringing that option to you, the listeners. If you've ever listened to a Closer Mentality episode and thought, I feel exactly the same way, I'm working with BetterHelp to bring online therapy to your phone and computer. BetterHelp offers video, phone, and live chat options, and you can speak to a licensed therapist in less than 48 hours. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 licensed therapists around the country, and you have access to them at any time. You can get thoughtful messages from your therapist, and if you aren't happy, it's free to change providers. If you're worried about the cost of traditional talk therapy, BetterHelp also plans for that. They offer financial aid if funding is the only thing standing between you getting the help you need. Join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. I have a special offer for all Closer Mentality listeners. 
You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. That's betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. And thanks so much for listening to Brandon's story in episode 61 of Closer Mentality. As always, I'm your host, Julia Melvin. You can follow Brandon on Instagram at Brandon underscore Griffiths 10 and Closer Mentality at Closer Mental. To listen to Brandon and I's entire interview, head on over to Closer Mentality Uncensored on YouTube. Next week, I'm bringing you the story of an amazing collaborative effort from the University of Michigan to enhance mental health dialogues. But until then, see you next week.